0: I have friends who are not yet published who are stronger writers than I am. So I think that so much of this industry is about luck and timing
1: and not necessarily about talent. Welcome to Queries, Qualms and Quirks, the weekly podcast that asks published authors to share their successful query letter and discuss their journey from first spark to day of publication. I am your host, author Sarah Nicholas, and literary agent Sarah N. Fisk. Originally from the Ozarks, Paulette Kennedy now divides her time between her hometown of Springfield, Missouri, and a quiet suburb of Los Angeles. When she isn't writing, she enjoys tending to her garden, knitting, and finding unique vintage treasures at thrift stores and flea markets. Paulette is the author of Parting the Veil vale and The Witch of Tin Mountain, so please welcome Paulette to the show. Hello. Hi, Sarah. How are you? Hi. Today, we're going to talk about your journey to publication, and we're going to start by going back all the way to the beginning. When did you first start getting interested in writing, and then how long did it take before you started getting serious about pursuing publication?
0: So, I've always enjoyed reading, and um, I was always an avid reader as a child. And so, about third grade, uh, one of my teachers started noticing that I had an aptitude for writing. And I remember I wrote this short story. And in this short story, there were 50 horses and it was like an autobiographical short story. So, it was kind of like an essay. And um, I got up in front of the class and I I read it um, as part of the assignment. And the kids actually believed that I had those 50 horses because I I did an okay (laughs) job with describing them. So, they thought it was real. That was kind of like where I thought, hmm, maybe there might be something to this. So, I always had like kind of written little short stories and poetry and things like that. I edited my high school um, like literary magazine and it uh, was really fun and I had the opportunity to kind of learn some behind the scenes journalism things too. I worked on our yearbook, but it wasn't until college whenever I really started looking at commercial fiction and potentially becoming a novelist. And my professors encouraged me. I was a literary major at that time. So I didn't really do a lot of fiction writing yet, but I started going to conferences and things like that. So about the age of 19 years old, I started writing my first novel and I never finished it. (laughs) And um, that was kind of the major issue for me is just finishing Mm. something. Um, I had lots of ideas. I had lots of concepts in mind, but I could never finish anything. So when I started going to conferences and meeting other people in the writing community, that's when I started learning a little bit more about publishing. I joined Twitter and I started um, talking to other friends who were pursuing publication and that really helped me a lot to kind of know where to start, like how to write a query letter and a synopsis and all the things that you need for a submission package. And so in my 30s, I took a long break from writing because I was pursuing photography instead. And I didn't really have time to juggle both. Like I was a wedding photographer Mm. on the weekends. And then during the week I was, I had to edit all the photos that I took on the weekend. So there wasn't, plus I was a mother. So there wasn't like a lot of time for me to write. I know that sounds like an excuse that a lot of us have, (laughs) but whenever um, the pandemic hit, I had been working on something. The pandemic hit and I lost all my wedding contracts. Mm. And so At that time, my husband and I decided that, well, maybe we should look into taking this writing thing seriously. So I really started like buckling down and I finished uh, the first draft of my novel. I actually finished a first draft of a complete novel, which was a first for me. (laughs) And I started getting some advice and critiques and I started working on revising that novel. And then I entered it into RevPit and I got shortlisted for that contest and I ended up not winning the contest, but I ended up hiring Maria Turow as my editor and she really helped guide me and mentor me on this manuscript. Mm. I ended up rewriting the whole thing. Um, I started querying it about a year after that and I had a lot of initial interest from agents, but I had no takers, like I had requests and things, but nobody actually like pulled the the trigger on on actually offering. Red. So I pulled it back for one more revision. And then I entered pitmad mad, just kind of on a whim, I'd always been a watcher, I'd always uh, like helped my friends and retweeted for pit mad. Mm-hmm. And so I entered pit mad for the very first time. And uh, the pitch, went really well, I wouldn't know, I guess it kind of went viral, like I got all of the interest from agents. So I started um, querying all those agents sending off my materials. And then within just a week, I had an offer from my agent. Mm. And so I had another offer after that. And I kind of weighed both agents and decided to go with the initial agent who offered rep. And then shortly after that, we went on sub and uh, parting the veil, what became parting the veil
1: sold um,
0: back in November of 2020. So that was kind of my path.
1: Awesome. Do you happen to have that Twitter pitch? I do. Yeah, I'll have to, I bookmarked it. It's way back in my Twitter feed. Let
0: me see if I can find it. Hill House Meets Mexican Gothic. Don't go into the South Wing. Don't walk in the Birchwood and do not speak to the servants. But rules are meant to be broken and Eliza's new husband has secrets, the kind the dead don't like to keep. I hashtagged it pit mad, adult, historical, horror, and LGBT.
1: All right. And that got like 600 retweets, 120 likes. I don't know how many of those are agent likes, but that's very exciting. But when you started querying from then until the time you got your contract was very short. But similar to Angeline Bully's story, who I talked to last season, it took her a very long time to get up to that point where she was even querying. So she was spending a lot of that time working on her craft, but also just kind of like developing the story in her mind and um, is that the same kind of experience that you had?
0: Absolutely. So yeah, I had been working on that that novel for almost three years by the time I got my contract. And I had put it through several revisions. I had shopped it out to several people to read. I had, I think, 40 beta readers. I I really went overboard <laughs> with beta readers, but I really wanted to get an overview of what was wrong with the manuscript. And I had a lot of people that were very kind and volunteered their time. And I've of course paid that forward as much as I can. But yes, I I spent a lot of time with that manuscript because It was the first thing I had ever finished. So I knew that the first draft was awful. And I knew it would mean a lot of work. And all my other manuscripts in my backlist that are not finished, I would always get to about page 50 or 100. And then I would just freeze up and quit. Mm. And so a lot of that had to do with my perfectionism. I had a real issue with just like getting the first draft down and like letting it be bad. (laughs) I've always been like the good student kind of the teacher's pet. Mm -hmm. And so I always wanted to get things right on the first try. And that's not maybe necessarily the best thing when you're a writer, because you have to learn like it's okay to make mistakes and it's okay to not get it right on the first try. And so once I just kind of let go and just let the words like come out so that I could fix them later, that really helped me a ton. And also just getting feedback from people who knew like story craft, because I was kind of coming from a background where I had mostly done academic writing, I was, I read a mm. ton of fiction, but I didn't really like, write in a way that was conducive to selling like commercially. And so like, I, I had a really like blistering critique at a writing conference with one manuscript, not not the manuscript that became parting the veil, but another one before that. And that was really good for me. <laughs> because <laughs> she had a lot of great points. But you know, that first hard critique is always difficult for every writer. It's like, Mm -hmm. you know, because you have your idea in your head, and you think it's a really good idea. And otherwise, you wouldn't bother writing it, right. And so when you get that first really like, critical critique, where it makes you kind of step back and look at your work a little bit differently and see it through someone else's eyes. I think it can do one of two things it can just completely like, block you to where you don't want to work on your work for a while, or it can like get you excited. And I think that I think about that a lot when I'm giving critique to, because I definitely want to be encouraging, but also bring up issues. But I want to overall, hopefully, instill like a desire to continue to, to work on the manuscript and the writer that I'm critiquing. And so there were aspects of that critique that I really felt were, um, maybe a little bit too harsh, but also at the same time, they really helped me think about my manuscript a little bit more objectively. So that was kind of a good experience. And also another good experience is I signed up for a pitch um, event at the writing contest. And so I actually got the opportunity to pitch an agent. And that really helped me not be afraid of agents. (laughs) Because that was kind of a little bit of a roadblock for me too, because I mm. really had this idea of agents as, as being like, white tower type people. It's like, <laughs> actually, no, you know, agents are people and they want to see writers succeed. Mm-hmm. And so I, I, even though my manuscript wasn't finished, and I was upfront with the agent about that, she still took time to talk to me. And she gave me some some tips and some pointers. And I definitely would not recommend pitching your manuscript if it's not finished. That's like a big no, no. <laughs> yeah. But I was kind of going to her and, and paying for that session to just get a little bit of an idea of what it would be like to talk to an agent. And I'm really glad that I did that. And she was very, very kind, and offered me some advice. And Took some time with me, and even though it didn't, couldn't have resulted in in a contract, it was still valuable for me to to see agents and also just to watch like roundtable discussions and panels uh, with agents. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's something that I definitely pass on to other writers uh, when they're trying to break in. Is like really listen to industry people and what they have to say because it can help you uh, much more quickly than if you try to go about it all on your own.
1: All right, so you told us a little bit about it, but once you decided to take publishing seriously, how did you learn more about the publishing industry, like how it works, how to query, all that different stuff?
0: I learned a lot on Twitter, um, just participating on Twitter and just seeing how agents interacted with uh, the Twitter community, the writing community, because I think that agents, some agents are on Twitter and are very active. My agent's um, on Twitter as well. She's not maybe as active as some agents, but I think that especially whenever you kind of look and see at what they're requesting and like what their MSWLs are, it can kind of give you, give you a little bit of a read on the market, um, which that's a big buzzword right now because querying is so mm-hmm. tough um, at the moment. But also just um, making friends in the writing community on Twitter. Mm-hmm. That's kind of where I learned about what getting published actually inha- entailed, like how, how the process worked, like from querying to uh, what editorial would be like. And then I learned from Maria, whenever she um, edited my manuscript and gave me a developmental edit, I really learned what a developmental edit meant. Mm -hmm. And that really helped me once I got my contract, because I knew what to expect whenever I had to do DE and then copy edits and proofreading. And so like learning about all of the different steps that it takes to actually publish a book I learned a lot of that on Twitter and I learned a lot of it too from reading craft books. Um, There are a lot of really excellent craft books out there. Also writer's market, reading writer's market, publisher's marketplace. Um, There are lots of really good resources out there to kind of learn about how publishing works, the business side of publishing and uh, the craft side of writing. I think is really, there's just a wealth of information out there through writing conferences like write hive and, Uh, different conferences that are virtual and some in person too. So if you can go locally, I think there's something to be said for going locally now that everything has opened up again and um, we're able to kind of meet with people that are colleagues and our associates and make those connections. It's really nice to be able to do that again.
1: It is time for the first cue of the podcast title. Can you read your successful query letter for us?
0: Dear agent. Dear agent. Some houses hold secrets meant to be kept forever. When Eliza Sullivan unexpectedly inherits an English country estate, she jumps at the chance to leave her grief-shrouded past in Louisiana behind. But there's a catch. To claim her bequest, she must marry an Englishman. The last thing Eliza wants is a husband until she meets the eccentric Viscount next door. The story behind Malcolm's fire-scarred mansion and the tragic loss of his family is a conversation of choice over brandy-snifters throughout the county. But rumors of arson and generational curses do little to prevent Eliza's fascination with the reclusive lord or his unusual house. Their shared empathy leads to a feverish courtship and they elope, scandalizing rural Hampshire. But Eliza's new husband may not be as innocent as she thinks. The lies veiling Malcolm's past unravel as quickly as his changeable moods, and she soon discovers his mansion is haunted by much more than tragedy. As the house comes alive, spirits trapped within its walls prey upon Eliza's psyche, forcing her to confront long-hidden scars. When her quest for the truth unearths the deadliest secret of all, Eliza has a choice. Trust what the house is telling her, or fall victim to the Havenwood curse. Parting the Veil is a standalone adult historical gothic, complete at 96,000 words. With the atmosphere of Kate Morton's The Clockmaker's Daughter and proto-feminist heroine inspired by Jane Eyre, it will appeal to fans of haunted house lore and the queer inclusive works of Sarah Waters. Originally from Missouri, I now live in Los Angeles. I am an LGBTQ plus member of Twitter's writing community, a mental health advocate, and a freelance photographer. Thank you for your time and consideration sincerely paulette writing as paulette
1: kennedy all right thank you for sharing that that sounds both awesome and like something i could never read because i am a scaredy cat (laughs) (laughs) it was fun to write so how has your experience been since signing that first book contract especially let us know if there were any surprises along the way
0: It's been really great. I love my publisher. My editor that signed me was absolutely wonderful. She ended up leaving shortly after the acquisition of my second book. So that was a little hard. But my new editor is equally wonderful. And I'm really enjoying working with her too. Um, I think one of the biggest surprises for me was just how quickly things happen, um, and the deadlines and such. Like, I think I had a little bit more time with my first book for developmental edits, but like my second book, like I definitely had a lot less time to get all of my edits done. And I think that's pretty typical from um, talking to my friends. It's like your first book, they kind of want to make sure that you have all of the help that you need and um, all the time that you need. And then once you can kind of mm. prove that you can do it, like things kind of move a little bit quicker for your second book. But I really think that the biggest surprise was just how much input I had as an author, like Mm. creative input on the book itself, but also the packaging. I had a lot of input on my cover. I had a lot of input on the title. Um, The original title was The Gloaming Veil, and we ended up changing that because it just wasn't sexy enough for marketing purposes. So um, I had some input from the marketing team, and we ended up going with Parting the Veil because they felt like that was just a better title for the market. So... It's kind of interesting, like how much with publishing a book has to do with editorial and how much has to do with marketing and placement. So I think that it was kind of surprising to me and interesting to see how all the parts flowed together and how everything happened, like, especially when the book went into production. It's kind of like a dance between all the people that are involved with making your book happen. And there's a lot of back and forth and communication is definitely the most important thing. Um, whenever you have a contract, being able to communicate with your editor, your agent, everyone who is involved on your team. And um, I've really had a great experience. I'm, I couldn't be happier.
1: Awesome. It is time for author DNA. It's our quick round. Uh, it's just classifications that we like to put writers in. Are you a pantser or a plotter? I am a planter. <laughs> little of both. Do you tend to be an overwriter or an underwriter? Underwriter. Do you prefer to write in the morning or at night? Morning. When starting a new project, do you typically start with a character or a plot or concept or something else? Concept. It usually starts out all vibes and not much plot. (laughs) Do you prefer coffee or tea? Coffee. When writing, do you prefer silence or some kind of sound? Sound, music. When it comes to the first draft, are you more of a get it down kind of person or a get it right kind of person? Get it down. <laughs> what tools or software do you use to draft? Word. Do you prefer drafting or revising more? Revising. Do you write in sequential order or do you hop around? It depends. Hmm. So sometimes you hop around?
0: Yeah, if I get stuck, I'll hop around. If something's more exciting to me and I
1: get stuck, I'll hmm. go write something else. And final quick round question. Are you an extrovert or an introvert? Introvert. All right. So we are now going to talk about the second cue of the podcast title. What were some of the qualms or worries that you had on your journey? And were they realized or did you overcome them? Or how did they shake out?
0: I was really worried about marketing myself, I think more than anything. Um, With my debut, I really wasn't sure what to expect my debut year. And I was in some really good debut groups. But it's really hard to know like how much to do when it comes to self-promotion. Mm-hmm. And I was kind of like throwing spaghetti at the wall to see what worked best for me and what I like the most. And I learned a lot. And I think you kind of have to go through that your debut year to kind of figure out a like what works best for you, what you're most comfortable with, whether it's social media or having a newsletter or being on podcasts and, and panels and such And I've really discovered that podcasts are my favorite. Mm. I love podcasts. I love um, Instagram Live. I did a lot of those uh, a couple weeks before my debut launched, and I really enjoyed those. So I feel better, which is kind of surprising because I am an introvert. Like talking to people one-on-one, I feel like is kind of the thing that makes me the least nervous. I feel like the thing that makes me the most nervous is just kind of like the level of like, like TikTok, like being performative, like that's really hard for me. Like, yeah,
1: um,
0: I think that like, I need to get more comfortable with TikTok. And I, I do enjoy TikTok. But like, I, I kind of, I'm a little bit self conscious still. And I think that part of that's probably to do with my age. I think also, like, it's just really fun to see like, how much uh, people that really enjoy TikTok do, do well with it. So I think TikTok's probably my biggest thing, but overall, it was just kind of like knowing what to do that debut year to make myself more visible to people and to get word about my book out, but also to not like overdo it and mm-hmm. like become obnoxious to <laughs> I was just constantly like pushing my book at people. So that was kind of the biggest thing I would say that when it came to publishing that I had.
1: Mm. And now for the third cue, do you have any writing quirks? Is there anything about your writing process that you think is kind of different or interesting or unique?
0: Yeah, I'm kind of a routine. I'm kind of a creature of habit, Uh, very ritualistic when it comes to my writing. So I like to get up at 430 in the morning. Oh, no. Um, That's before everybody else is up. Yeah. (laughs) And I, I like the quiet. I like just having my headphones in and listening to my music. So I just get up, I feed the cats, I make my coffee and I sit down at my desk, put my earphones in and put some concentration music on. And I just try to get my words down for the day. Um, if, if I'm drafting, if I'm revising, then of course I'll, I'll do that instead. But I tend to like take turns doing one or the other. Like I've just got my uh, proofreading pass for The Witch of Ten Mountains. So I'll take a break on drafting until I get my proof pages done And then I'll go back to drafting my work in progress. So I am kind of like a little bit regimented when it comes to my writing routine. So that might be a little bit quirky. I don't like to eat while I'm writing. I know I'm Mm. probably kind of a little bit of an outlier that way. Um, I often forget to eat, Mm -hmm. especially when I'm drafting because I'll just kind of get into the zone. I'm definitely neurodiverse. So I feel like if anything kind of interrupts my flow, it's really hard for me to like get back into that. And so I can hyper focus better if I don't have very many distractions. So that's why I just get up super early in the morning.
1: Mm. More power to you. (laughs) (laughs) When you were in the lowest parts of your journey, whatever that may have been for you, what kept you going? And why did you stick to it?
0: I think it was just knowing that this was something that I've always wanted to do the time I was young, I always wanted to be a writer. And I just didn't want to give up when I was discouraged whenever I was querying. And it's kind of difficult for me to talk too much about my querying journey, because I feel like compared to a lot of people, I was really, really lucky. Mm. And so like, I don't have as much to offer necessarily, like as far as like, having those discouraging stories. But for me, it was just not being able to finish something that was so hard for me. Like, once I got over that hurdle, it like did wonders for my confidence. But like, I really struggled for a long time with with finishing a book, not knowing if I could write my second book, there was that worry, too. I was really stressed out about that. My second book was like a trial by fire compared to my first in a lot of ways, just because I was kind of juggling my debut year while writing it. And that's really hard, Mm -hmm. but I'm still glad that I did it. And I proved to myself that I could do it again. And that was huge (laughs) for me uh, because I didn't for many, many years, I didn't think that I could finish a whole book. I thought that long form writing just wasn't for me that I was either going to be a blogger or an essayist, Mm. shorter form writing And I did enjoy being a blogger for a long time, but I I always wanted to be a novelist. And so I just kept clinging to that. And I'm like, you just got to push through. You just got to keep going. You just got to keep trying. And so like once I could prove it to myself that I could finish a full manuscript, like it got a little bit easier. And now like I'm working on my third and like I'm not even worried about finishing it. I know I can finish it because I've done it twice now. Mm -hmm. So I think that's one of the reasons why a lot of times agents, you know, they'll ask you, you know, what you're working on and what your backlist is like, because I think there are a lot of us out there that really struggle with like finishing a manuscript. It's really daunting when you think about it, like 80,000 words, you know, 90,000 words Mm. words—that's something. (laughs) It's like imagining like the longest assignment that you were ever given in school and then like multiplying that (laughs) by five. (laughs) <laughs> to write a book. Yeah. So you really have to like, have the love, I think, to be able to see it through.
1: Do you feel like you made any mistakes along the way that you might want to warn listeners about? So maybe they don't make the same ones? Beware of perfectionism. That's the, that's my biggest mistake.
0: Thinking something has to be perfect instead of getting it done first. Going back and, and some people do this successfully. I never have been able to going back and editing as you're drafting. Um, I have a lot of friends that that's how they write. That's how they prefer to write. And I can't do that. If I do that, then I'll just get, I'll just get into this loop of going over the same section over and over and over again, trying to make it perfect. So I do much better once I just get it down. And that to me, like, has been my biggest mistake in the past, I think I probably would have gotten a lot further a lot faster if I had just gotten out of my own way with that. And not thinking I had to get a straight A on my very first manuscript, you know, as far as mistakes, I think that we learn from them. And I think that's the biggest thing that I would say would be a takeaway for anyone who's listening. It's like just learn from your mistakes. And for whatever reason, you know, I, am 47 years old, you know, and I got published for the first time when I was 46 and there's not a right age or a wrong age to be published. It can happen at any point in time. But I think that learning those lessons and applying what you've learned is really a, a huge part, like be a student of craft, be a student of like learning whatever you can, um, as often as you can, and listening to people who are ahead of you, and also listening to people who are still coming up. I learned so much from my critique partners, from critiquing other manuscripts and beta reading. I have friends who are not yet published, who are stronger writers than I am. So I think that so much of this industry is about luck and timing, and not necessarily about talent. And so I think just learning to embrace your mistakes and learning that a mistake is just a chance to go back and try to make things better.
1: All right. Thank you. I call this the acknowledgments portion of the podcast. This is not a business that most of us succeed in completely on our own. Who are some of the people or even organizations who helped you along the way and how?
0: Oh, there are so many. Um, Rev Pit for one, uh, Jenny Chappelle and Maria Thoreau, uh, absolutely instrumental. That's how I met my main critique partner, Twee. And it's also how I met a lot of my beta readers. And so uh, my beta readers are amazing. Megan, Alex and SK. I absolutely love them. They have helped me with every manuscript. But I would say Maria and Jenny really just they helped me grow as an author. Mm -hmm. They helped me grow in craft. They helped me grow in like knowing how the industry worked and where I fit in the industry. And also like pit mad was wonderful too. I learned even though I only participated in one pit mad, like I learned a lot by watching other people pitch. And I think that learning how to pitch is like a huge skill that you'll need Mm -hmm. all through your career as a writer, because even after you get representation, even after you get a book deal, you're still going to be pitching all the time. So I think anything that you can look at, whether it's like query shark website, where you can learn how to, to write a query letter or a pitch really concisely is really helpful. And just looking at the back covers of books too. um, That's really helpful. Mm -hmm. Uh, But some really great podcasts are right now by Sarah Warner. I love that one. I also love Writing Excuses. Mm -hmm. That's a great podcast. Uh, The Right Hive podcast. There are lots of guests on that podcast who have a lot to offer. But yeah, I mean, and all of my friends who have supported me like my street team during my debut year who were always like so supportive and ready to like shout out my book. I, I'm just so grateful. Like my acknowledgments are so long. Like <laughs> my first book, they're really long. My second book, they're, I thought they would be shorter for my second book. No, I think they're actually longer. <laughs> so there's just, and I have a lot of writing groups that I'm involved with online, like mm-hmm. uh, Writer in Motion, that group. And, and we've all been friends like since the very start, like And a lot of us are now agented and a lot of us have book deals and such, but we've always stayed friends, like no matter what stage we're in on the journey and I appreciate them so much.
1: Yeah. All right, before you go, could you tell us about your upcoming release?
0: Yes. So my sophomore novel, uh, the witch of 10 mountain, which will be out December 6th from Lake union publishing um, is a Gothic. It's uh, based in the Ozarks where I'm from and it's about a family of hereditary witches and healers, folk healers, who um, have are fallen under kind of a generational curse. And so they're dealing with the aftermath of a choice that one of their forebears made a long time ago. And it's filtered down through the generations. And um, it's a dual timeline told in 1931. So during the Great Depression, and in 1881, during the Gilded Age and the era of expansion. So it was really fun to write. It was it was hard to write because of the dual timelines. But I'm really excited about it because it's kind of my love letter to where I grew up. But I also it's also like my feminist man- manifesto <laughs> to a little bit. Mm. And I, I, I talk about a lot of things that kind of have repercussions nowadays and things that we're experiencing in the modern era. I'm really excited about it.
1: Awesome. It sounds like I could probably read that one.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's a little scary
1: in places. A little. But okay. A little scary. <laughs> All right, Paula, thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing your story with everyone. Thank you so much for having me, Sarah. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Corey's Qualms, and Quirks. You can find the text of Paulette's query in the show notes, along with links to find out more about her and her books. If you enjoyed the show, I'd really appreciate if you'd help me find new listeners by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or Podchaser, telling your friends, or sharing this episode on social media. If you're interested in supporting the show, go to patreon.com pubtalklive. And if you're a published author interested in being a guest on the show, please click on the home base link in the description or go to sarahnicholas.com and click on the podcast logo in the sidebar. That's Sarah with an H and Nicholas with no H. Thank you so much for listening and we'll see you next time.